Well, good morning, new community. I truly mean it when I say it is an honor to be here with you this morning. Thank you so much to the leadership team, Sue, and whoever else is organizing the luncheon next Sunday um, for Emily and me. I, I, I'm just looking forward. If you're available to come join us, come join us for this luncheon. It has been a gift to serve in this community, to serve on staff at our church. And my hope is that together we will be able to honor the unique gifts, joys, and relationship that we've shared together the past few years. Before I jump into today's sermon, it really feels important to me to participate in what I feel like I've been noticing as an unspoken custom at this pulpit. Um, it's the custom of honoring people, specific people or groups of people before approaching the sermon portion of this, the teaching portion of the sermon. And this custom reminds me of what Paul did even when his letters to the churches. He would recognize or give greetings or gratitude to particular people in the churches when he was addressing. And one thing I love about this custom is it reminds us that we have a shared life together. That even on Sundays when we orient ourselves toward worship, toward the stage of the cross, toward God... That it is a community that works in tandem with God to nurture our worship together. So first of all, as I approach today's sermon, I want to share some special thanks to those who have helped shape today's sermon. One of my dear friends, Barnabas Lynn, has been like a mentor to me over the past couple of years. And one of the suggestions he shared when he said, this is how you can prepare for a sermon, is he said, discuss the passage you're going to preach with others. And so I want to thank my conversation partners, Barney, Barnabas Lynn, Matt Buton, and Medeja Sims. Thank you for shaping today's sermon. And I'm continually amazed by how each person's unique perspectives, experience, and lens continues to help us have a fuller understanding of God. Last but not least, I want to thank Emily DeLue for always making a way for me and others to share their gifts, talents, and voice. Thank you for being a wholehearted champion of this church. Thank you for being a treasure to our community. We feel your love deeply. Will you join me in prayer? God, Holy Spirit, as Mickey even just shared, today we remember in the church calendar, feels so far away from when Easter was. Easter feels like another time. But today was that day, amount of days afterwards, it was the day of Pentecost, where Holy Spirit, you showed up in ways where the disciples had no idea, had no imagination to hold what you were going to do. So God, as we approach this day, however we woke up this morning, however our weeks have felt, God, I pray that you would invite us into an imagination that says that even that you, God, will work beyond what we can imagine and give us hearts to be able to hold what you are wanting to do. God of the good news, meet us here today. Show us your ways and help us to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Can I just tell you how grateful I am for this month's series, for this month's focus on the person of Jesus Christ and the Gospels? I say this because it brings me to this time last year. You see, this time last year was a pretty bumpy time for us as a community. As a church, we had just started coming back to in-person services after more than a year of being physically apart. And at the same time, we had just become a new season, began a new season, where we were navigating a pretty significant staff transition. I remember many of us, uh, remember as ministry directors, coming together that season asking some really hard questions. How might we lead the congregation at this time? What might we as a congregation need to hear? What might we need to focus our attention on in the midst of so much transition and turmoil? And as we began discussing our thoughts on these questions, a new set of questions emerged. In a season with so much change, what is one thing that has not changed? What is one thing about Newcom that has not changed, that has stayed consistent amidst all the challenges we've experienced? And one of the answers we landed on was this, that new community, Logan Square, has always been a gospel-oriented church. And so we began to navigate that season none of us had experienced before. And we led the church by bringing the community back to the foot of the cross and remembering what has grounded and centered us as a community and as a church family over the years. We nestled our collective weary souls next to the truth of the gospel, next to the truth of the good news. And we did that by reengaging in-person community, in-person communion. We even had a Community Voices summer sermon series that focused on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And all of this was nourishing us in the good news. While that season was rough for many of us, myself included, I also feel a sense of nostalgia as I remember the practices and our posturing as a community. These practices and postures are tangible reminders that even in the midst of continued challenge and continued uncertainty, the good news is still good news. Can I say amen? The good news is still good news. Brothers and sisters, siblings in the family of God, as we stand in this current moment of our country, of our church, of our families and marriages, of our friendships, of our schools, we need good news. We are sitting in a moment in national history where I can start referring to the recent mass shooting and you might have to stop me and ask me, which one are you talking about? I just read a headline this past week that said that guns are now the leading cause of death for children. Guns are now the leading cause of death for children. We need good news. And so let me say this again. I am so grateful for this month's series. And my prayer is that you and I will be able to access the good news of Christ that is still good news. 
So if you're willing and able, will you please stand with me in the reading of today's scripture. And if you have a Bible and want to follow along, we will be reading from Luke 13, 10 to 17. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, or another version says bent double, and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to get, get it water, give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. This is the word of the Lord. At the beginning of this year, a dear friend introduced me to this particular passage by telling me that she felt like the woman in this Bible story, that she felt like she had been bent double for 18 years. And as she was sharing her experience in ministry and how she was struggling to flourish in her context, I remember feeling a little embarrassed because I was silently wondering what story in the gospel she was referring to. (laughs) Honestly, I couldn't remember the bent double woman. I've read the Gospels many times over, and I couldn't clearly remember which story which she was recalling. But after talking some more, I realized that I had read this story many times, actually. But I had remembered the Sabbath part, the conflict over the healing on the Sabbath part of the story. I hadn't clearly remembered the woman part, and definitely not the bent double part. And so as we approach this passage together, I'm wondering if you can join me in first sitting with the significance of this woman's experience in hope of encountering the good news that was available to her and available to us. Now, just for quick context, if you aren't familiar with Jewish culture or Bible, I want to provide you two pieces of information. The first is around the Sabbath. The other is around the synagogue. First of all, Sabbath was a God-given practice to the Jewish people, and it involved resting on the seventh day of the week. The practice involved being free of any form of labor as a way of honoring God in the rhythm of God's created order. Secondly, synagogue was a gathering place for the Jewish people. And it was their rhythm to gather together in the synagogues on Sabbath to hear the reading of the Torah, sometimes the teaching of the Torah as well. Now, on this particular Sabbath and in this particular synagogue that Jesus was teaching at, Jesus encounters an unnamed woman. A woman who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. And so this woman had been bent double, and as one, as one version says, and she could not straighten up for 18 years. The text tells us that this woman was crippled by a spirit, meaning her crippling condition was not merely physical, nor was it merely spiritual. It was both. And you and I know through our human experience 
that if we have a physical experience, it's most likely going to touch other areas of our lives, right? Such as spiritual, emotional, and mental. And the vice versa is true as well. All of our experiences are connected. And so I wouldn't be surprised if this woman's experience of being bent double had impacted every area of her existence. As I continue to reflect on this woman's experience, it feels really important for me to name my limits. What I mean is, I have experienced physical limitations, like in sixth grade, I dislocated my finger, had a cast on, my mom had to write all my, all my homework, right? And I experienced some intense uh, post-delivery recoveries. But I have always been an able-bodied person. And so it's with my limited experience that I wonder about her personal experience. For example, if she was bent double, I wonder how often she was able to see and look at people in their faces when talking to them. I wonder how her condition impacted her capacity to relate to others. I wonder if her condition was painful, if she had chronic pain. I wonder what coping mechanisms were true for her. Was she the type to seek out attention? Or was she more the type to kind of hide, to stay quiet, blend in with the surroundings as not as a way of avoiding negative attention? I wonder. I do not know the answers to my wonderings, but what I do know is that Jesus saw her. Text says, when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. I find it so interesting that in the story, Jesus gave explicit attention to her gender by naming her woman. Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Now, let's be really clear that Jesus naming this woman had a different ring to it than if someone in today's time were to say woman, right? For example, if a male I didn't know turned to me, saw me, and said, woman, step forward, I'd have a strong reaction, and it wouldn't have you delightful. (laughs) But when Jesus was addressing this woman at this time, he was addressing a woman in the context of ancient patriarchy. He was engaging a woman in a time when women and children had such low social worth, they were not even counted when people were counted at mass gatherings. It was normal for women not to be counted. But Jesus, who was always pushing against social norms, made it a point not only to engage a woman, but to highlight her womanness when addressing her. I was listening to a webinar recently featuring women talking about their experience as Christian women leaders. And one of the leaders shared about her call to ministry by saying this, I believe that God was calling me not in spite of me being a woman, but because I'm a woman. Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. I've been meditating on this passage quite a bit for several months now. And meditating specifically on the series of gestures in which Jesus engages the woman. The text tells us that the very first gesture in Jesus' engagement was that Jesus saw her. Then he called her forward. Next, he spoke words of healing and freedom over her 
And lastly, he put his hands on her. I wonder how much of the experience, of her experience of liberation and healing was found not just in the miracle that Jesus had performed through her body, but how much healing and liberation each and every one of those loving gestures were. I wonder if any of our, all of those gestures served as what my therapist calls emotionally corrective experience. I wonder if any or all of those gestures in themselves felt healing to the woman in her lived experience. For example, I wonder, I wonder if she was someone who had ever felt life feeling unseen. And through Jesus seeing her, she was able to experience what it felt like for someone to extend a loving gaze toward her. I wonder if she had any experience of feeling unrecognized. And if through gesture of Jesus calling her forward, she was able to experience recognition or that feeling of being chosen. And I wonder if she had any experience of feeling unloved or unworthy of belonging. And if through the gesture of Jesus touching her, she was able to access feelings of love, feelings of connection, feelings of belonging. I wonder. Now, the text tells us that after Jesus' series of loving gestures, it says this, immediately she straightened up and praised God. The text says that she straightened up almost as if it was a response to God healing her. Jesus announced the good news that she had been set free from her infirmity, and it's only after he places his hands on her that she physically responds by straightening up and praising God. Now, for the first time in 18 years, she is standing up straight. This week, I had the privilege of talking with Alexa Kuss, a member of our congregation, and during our conversation, we talked about how one of her loved ones had been experiencing an illness that had seri placed serious restrictions on her day-to-day -day life. Alexa shared with me that this loved one was on the road to recovery and still experiencing many firsts. You see, this person experiencing a kind of infirmity that kept her from ordinary things like going outside. And so sing, saying things like last month was the first time she stepped outdoors or this is the first time she's bathing independently, those statements were really big deals. I mentioned this midweek conversation, Lexa, because her phrase, experiencing many firsts, has been on my mind. Isn't that one of the phrases we use when we are on the road to recovery? When we are on the journey with healing? Maybe it's, this is the first time I have not had a sip of alcohol in six months. This is the first time I have not worked since, this is my first time dating since. This is the first time I am not feeling overwhelmed with thoughts of inadequacy. This is the first time I am not plagued with thoughts of ending my life. For the woman in this story, it was the first time in 18 years of being able to stand up straight. 
It might have been her first time in 18 years of being able to see with ease the other people's faces looking back at her with awe and joy. This was good news to the woman. And this was good news to the people. The text says the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. You know, there's nothing in the text that reveals anything about this woman's character or reputation. We don't know if she was really well-liked, if she was really impressive. We don't know how great or terrible she was. We don't know anything. All we know is that the focus and joy of the encounter was that Jesus had made straight that which was crooked. And that was good news to the woman and to the people. Jesus had healed an ordinary woman, not because of her merit or social performance, and that brought joy to the people. And while this joy was so contagious, leaving people praising and delighting, the text also shows us that not everyone had caught that joy. Says, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. <laughs> the synagogue leader was not feeling joy, he was feeling indignant. The Oxford Dictionary defines indignant as this feeling or showing anger or annoyance at what is perceived as unfair treatment. Have you ever felt indignant before? Have you ever felt annoyed or angry about a situation that felt unfair? Perhaps you were accused of something that was not true. Perhaps you had to deal with a situation that felt like total nonsense. Indignation is essentially a form of anger. And anger is what emotional experts say is a secondary emotion. Anger is a secondary emotion because it serves to protect and cover up other more vulnerable emotions we may have beneath the surface. For example, we might feel scared, attacked, humiliated, trapped. And all of those emotions, if they're intense enough, might be displayed outwardly as anger. I wonder what the synagogue leader was feeling in addition to his indignation. Was he feeling threatened? And if he was feeling threatened, I wonder what he was so afraid of and why. So in order for us to better understand this leader's indignations, we must have a deeper understanding of two things. First, the synagogue leader's role. And secondly, the significance of the Sabbath. So start with the role. Well, before that, I'm going to say something. <laughs> I don't know about you, but for me, I'm just going to confess here, it's really easy for me to write off religious leaders in the Gospels. And I'm going to take a step further and be really honest and say that sometimes it can be easy for me to write off people that remind me of the religious leaders in the Gospels. But if you're like me, I want to ask you to press in. I want to ask you to suspend your judgment so that we might experience greater understanding and relatability with the synagogue leader. Okay, so now the synagogue leader's role. So remember, synagogues were gathering places for the Jewish people, and each synagogue was assigned one synagogue leader. And it was the synagogue leader's responsibility 
like that word responsibility, I can resonate with that a lot, to be a good steward of the Jewish tradition and faith. The synagogue leader was given authority to be in charge and his job to take his leadership role and responsibilities seriously. Okay, that's the synagogue leader. Now let's consider what's so significant about the Sabbath for the Jewish people. So the historical context is that the Jewish nation has always been bullied. You had empires trying to break them and assimilate them into dominant culture. You literally had emperors trying to shatter their ethnic and religious identity by breaking them apart from their distinctive practices and lifestyle. Distinctive ways of what it meant to be Jewish. In fact, there were two practices that the Romans and the Hellenists tried to break the Jewish people from. You know what those practices were? Circumcision and Sabbath. In my question asking and research, I came across some chilling historical realities. Here's one example. Did you know that there was a time in Jewish history where their people were commanded not to circumcise their children anymore? Antiochus Epiphanes had issued this particular command and threatened to punish anyone who was not in compliance, who was still performing circumcisions. And the empire would violently punish anyone who was not compliant with this command. The empire strangled women that circumcised their children, and then they strangled their sons too. They would even go so far as to hang the infant sons around their mother's necks. You see, these terrorizing tactics were attempts to attack and destabilize the very practices that kept the Jewish people together. But despite this painful history, they had endured as a people. The Jewish people had managed to preserve their cultural identity through practices like circumcision and Sabbath. See, Sabbath was a tradition that had been preserved all the way through Exodus. All the way through the part of their history where they were under an escaped oppressive Egyptian rule. And so if you know that part of history, you'll remember that even in that season, their daily nourishment came in the form of manna. And even so, they would, the Jewish people honored the Sabbath. So every morning, manna would come, right? They would gather the manna or the bread that fell from heaven. But on the sixth day, the, the amount of manna they would receive was, was, was enough so that on the seventh day, they wouldn't have to go out to gather that food. This happened so that they could honor God in the Sabbath day of rest. The Sabbath was a tradition that God himself had given the people. And this tradition was built into their living and their survival. And so let's fast forward back into Jesus' day. To this particular day when Jesus healed a woman of her infirmity on the Sabbath. And in doing so, she, he disrupted the strictly defined practice of Sabbath. Now, thinking about Jewish history and context, I feel like it's understandable that the synagogue leader was feeling indignant because perhaps Jesus' gesture really felt like an attack. 
an attack not only on the particular synagogue's culture, but perhaps even an attack on the whole Jewish culture and identity as a whole. Perhaps in this synagogue leader's mind, Jesus was attacking the ancient practice of Sabbath, the very practice that kept, helped the entire nation endure unspeakable trauma. Perhaps he felt that Jesus was leading the people astray and away from the very core of what it meant to be Jewish and what it meant to worship Yahweh. Perhaps he was thinking something along the lines of, how dare you? How are you going to change up everything because of one woman? Who are you to do such a thing? Who do you think you are? What disrespect. What disrespect to the years and years of tradition and legacy. For someone who's a little more risk adverse, I truly wonder why Jesus chose to engage such a risky and conflict-provoking act. I wonder why Jesus hadn't simply been more considerate of the timing. Why not heal on one of the other six days, like the synagogue leader said? Why did Jesus have to shake things up the way that he did? Was it really so necessary? Couldn't this woman have accessed life-changing love and healing just on a different day? I can't be sure of Jesus' intentions and plans for that particular day. But what I do know is that the Jesus of the Gospels had a mission that went beyond healing individuals in a broken system. Because Jesus wasn't just about healing the individual. He wanted to heal the system too. And in order to do that, Jesus needed to expose the hollowness of what religious activity had become in order to reveal a way that was more true. A system or a way of interacting that was truly good news to all. Luke 13, 15, 15 says this, The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? The message version says it like this, each Sabbath, every one of you regularly unties your cow or donkey from its stall, leads it out for water, and thinks nothing of it. So why isn't it all right for me to untie this daughter of Abraham and lead her from the stall where Satan has had her tied these 18 years? The voice version reads it like this. Can't we untie her from her oppression on the Sabbath? You know, the irony of this story is that we have two distinct characters that were bent. First, you have a woman that was bent double for 18 years. And Jesus, in his mercy and grace, liberated her from her oppression so that she could straighten up and praise God. And then you have a synagogue leader 
who was bent in his own kind of way, and he was so bent out of shape over Jesus shaking things up and ushering a new kingdom order that was truly good news for all. But not only was this leader so bent out of shape, he was also bent on maintaining a particular religious order, even at the cost of allowing that order or system to unintentionally be oppressive. Is there anyone coming up? This week, as I've been preparing to preach, I have really sensed that the Holy Spirit asking me to take deep notice of the experience and posture of the synagogue leader. Because I too am a spiritual leader. And I too feel a great sense of responsibility. And I too have the sense tendency to overly be committed to my ways, convictions, and principles. And as I hear that spirit speaking to me and speaking to us, I hear the spirit reminding us that the contagious joy of the woman and the people was made available to us all, including the synagogue leader. See, the invitation for the leader in the story was not an invitation to be attacked. No, it was an invitation to bend toward Jesus. To bend toward Jesus and the liberation and joy that Christ has made available for all. I recently heard the song called Velveteen by Krista Wells. And here's a lyric that she's saying, and I felt like she was literally singing it to me. She's saying, coming alive feels a lot like dying. And I think our hearts are sometimes resistant to the good news and all that it is because coming alive feels a lot like dying. Opening ourselves up to the way of Jesus, to the way of the cross, often requires us to move in counterintuitive ways And there are times in which what had previously offered us so much good is no longer what is needed moving forward. And that whole process can feel like dying. So as we close out, I want to create some space for us to respond to God and whatever God is calling us toward. Whatever God is calling us to bend toward. There are three reflection questions I want you to consider as you come before God in prayer. I suggest you just choose one and to um, deeply reflect on that one as you listen to God's heart for you. The first question is this, in what ways are you needing healing? In what ways are you needing Jesus to see you, to call you, to speak words of healing over you, to touch you? What firsts might God be inviting you to? My second question is this. In what ways might you be needing to step fully into your liberation? Maybe God has been doing a work of healing and liberation in you, and it is time to straighten up and praise God. It is time 
for you to bear witness to the good news that God has made available to you in Christ Jesus. Or maybe it's this question for you to consider. In what ways have you left systemic oppression untied? And in what ways is God inviting you to join God in God's liberating work so that good news is truly good news for all? Dear friends, what might it mean for you to say yes to coming alive to the good news of Jesus Christ, even when it feels like dying? What might it look like for you to hear God's invitation to you, not as an attack and all that you are or all that you hold true, but as healing instead? What might it look like for you and me to surrender to our healing? You know what the beauty of the good news is? is that it holds the power not just to hold it all together, but the power of the gospel has the power for us to fall apart. Because it is in falling apart that we are able to access something new and life-producing. It is in falling apart that the good news of Christ has the power to break through and become truly good news for us and for all. And so as we enter into this time of response, I'm going to ask for those three reflection questions to be projected again. And if it's helpful for you, if it's a helpful resource for you, I want you to use it and to consider how God is inviting you to respond. And during this time of response, I want to invite you to take notice of what you are feeling, what you are thinking. And as you think about those thoughts and emotions that come up, as you take notice of these things, I want you to also take notice, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit of the good news. What is the Spirit speaking to you in the midst of it all? Will you join me right now in letting the good news encounter wherever you may be today? Whether it's reflecting on these questions and letting those questions not just have a quick passing thought through your mind, but letting them settle into your heart. Where might you be needing healing? Where might God be stepping, asking you to step into more fully into your liberation? What systemic oppression is God asking you to join him and bring liberating work toward?
You keep your eyes closed as I'm going to keep my eyes closed as I say this. In my preparation for today, I keep getting this image of people responding in a physical way. And I'm going to admit that I'm feeling a little adverse to this, but I feel, I just sense that God is wanting to do some healing, liberating work in us. And so I'm going to ask any of you, if you are resonating with God today, and God is speaking to you about a particular area of healing, a particular area where God is wanting to unbind. I want to invite you to come up. Come up to the front. Come up into the aisles. I'm going to ask you to have an embodied response. Because I think there is something about the physical motions that we take I think there was something about Jesus seeing her. I think there was something about Jesus touching her. I think there was something about Jesus calling her forward and her stepping forward, that it was a participation in the healing work of the good news. And so I'm going to invite you, if you, for whatever reasons, you don't, you don't have to explain to anyone, but you are just sensing that God is calling you to something. I'm going to invite you to come up or come to the side, and I want you to just kneel there, stand there, whatever you want to do as your representation. Maybe it's just standing up where you are, whatever it may be. But the sense is we all agree that we need good news. Will we have the courage to step into our liberation? Will we have the courage to surrender to our healing? And so if this is you, will you courageously stand with me, come forward with me, whatever you may want to do, in a physical bodied response, would you do that with me right now? you're still feeling that nudge in your spirit, be bold. Move with your body, move with your heart, and respond to the Holy Spirit and however God may be inviting you. And so for those of us, if we are being aware of our brother and sisters, our siblings in Christ who have responded in particular ways, I want to invite the rest of us, whether to stretch our arms out or literally to go and put your hands on someone, of course, in a loving and in, in a way that is um, comfortable with the person who you are touching. But we are the church. We don't come on Sundays just to hear a sermon or just to sing some songs. We come for church. 
and you are the church and we are the church and the healing is experienced in the community of God. And so I am asking you right now, whether you feel really great about praying for people or great about your gifts of healing, whatever, I don't, it doesn't matter. The spirit of God is here and the good news of the gospel is that God is alive with us, even when it feels like we're dying. And so I want you to, as a church, as a church, place your hands on one another, stretch your arms, whatever it may be to those who have responded. Come up to the front and come pray. And I'm just going to leave some time for the Holy Spirit to minister to us. And minister to our prayers, ministers to our, our cries, ministers, our questions, whatever God may be doing. Let's allow Holy Spirit to do whatever the Holy Spirit may want to do at this time.